When I pronounce the word future, the first syllable already belongs in the past. When I pronounce the word silence, I destroy it. And when I pronounce the word nothing, I make something no non-being can hold. Welcome back, listeners. We're your hosts, Miranda Stan and Pooja Bhatti. We're extremely excited for our upcoming panel featuring various podcasters and videographers, science communicators from across Canada. In the weeks leading up to the event, we will be conducting short interviews with each of our panelists to hear a little about what they do and what they're most looking forward to in our upcoming event. This week, we talked to Kevin Mercurio, the creator and host behind Metaforgen's podcast. I guess to start off, just tell us about the work you do for your podcast, a little bit about what it is, what it's about, how you got involved in it. So the podcast itself is, it's almost like a journey in terms of how it became created. I've always had like a a fancy for uh, reading and now into writing. So I do write some short fiction on the side. Um, I do like reading and I like the language itself of how different authors um, express their stories and um, express kind of their lives in a way. Um, So I I thought about branching into the podcast space with that in mind. And as you guys know, there's there's a lot of podcasts out there. So uh, if you don't have a unique idea, you probably won't break through into any sort of new audience. Um, So I tried to think about, you know, different different original content that I could I could put out there that I myself find interesting. And what got me to where it is now is um, expressions. So I always thought expressions were a great way of communicating something like a complex idea. So if we break down an expression, so if we talk about the most simplest thing, um, expressions are made of words or the phrases that have words that have letters. So even talking about letters, for example, Here's a question for you guys. Well, a letter is basically a way to inform us about how we make sounds with our mouths, right? So question, so question would be, you know, why do we have 26 letters? Or another, another question would be, why don't we have 27 letters? Or can we create a new letter? Oh, that's so interesting. It's hard to think about, right? Is there is there's is there a sound that we can make with our mouths that is currently not represented by 20, any of the twenty six letters we have in the English alphabet? There there are some letters that were a part of the English language. For example, um, here's an interesting fact: "and" used to be a letter, so "ampersand" was actually one of the was the twenty seventh letter of the English language. So, so you would say "z" or "z" if you're from Canada. And uh, follow that with per se and, which means in itself and. So and used to be actually a letter. Or, for example, you know, in throaty languages, um, that ugh sound. It's more like onomatopoeia for English, but that used to be a, a letter which kind of looked like a three tilted on a 10 degree axis. Um so that used to be a letter. Um, another popular letter, popularized by Elon Musk, was uh, Ash. So Elon Musk put that in his new child's name. Um, and Ash is kind of like E and an E mushed together. 
So there's a lot of interesting things with letters, just the basic unit of language. Well, even looking at it online, like, like, um, like just blowing, blowing air out of your mouth was a was a thing that people said could be a letter but then you wouldn't be able to use that with any words that we have or you'd have to make new words long story short the, the most basic form of a language the letter is already interesting that's so interesting so if you branch that out so putting letters together uh makes words so i'm a logophile you know if, if you guys are into scrabble um, i'm down to play scrabble anytime anywhere um but words are even more interesting. And I, I printed out this picture that was being circulated throughout, I think, all of 2000, back when social media was just sharing memes, which kind of is still. Um, but I, I'd like to read it, if you don't mind. Yeah, totally. So it's, it's basically how insane the English language is. So here's how it goes. It's from busyteacher.org. So let's face it, English is a crazy language. There is no egg in eggplant, nor ham in hamburger, neither apple nor pine in pineapple. English muffins weren't invented in England. Quicksand can work slowly, boxing rings are square, and a guinea pig is neither from guinea nor is a pig. And why is it that writers write, but fingers don't fing, grocers don't gross, and hammers don't ham? Doesn't it seem crazy that you can make amends, but not one amend? If teachers taught, why didn't preachers prot? And if vegetarians eat vegetables, what does a humanitarian eat? In what other language do people recite a play and play at a recital? We ship by truck, but send cargo by ship. We have noses that run and feet that smell. We park in a driveway and drive in a parkway. And how can a slim chance and a fat chance be the same while a wise man and a wise guy are opposites? You have to marvel at the unique lunacy of a language in which your house can burn up as it burns down, in which you fill in a form by filling it out, and in which an alarm goes off by actually going on. And in closing, if father is pop, how come mothers not mop? Okay, <laughs> that's given me a lot to think about. That reminds me, someone told me once, they're like, have you realized that you bake cookies? But cookies has the word cook in it, but you don't cook cookies, you bake cookies. And I'm like, you just ruined my favorite snack. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, why aren't they bakies? <laughs> you know, that's interesting. I was just having a conversation a couple days back about how language is so accessible, but unaccessible because of like the language level we speak at versus the language level academics write at, and then the language level of, say, the American news. Um, and we assume things to be much more intellectual than they are, but in actuality, a lot of things are functioning at, I think a children's book was about minus 35 points, but uh, certain adult conversations were only minus 32. So it was only a three-point difference between how you would write a children's book and how you would speak to a stranger on the street in terms of complexity and word choice. Yeah, and even if you go, like if you talk to somebody in the way you would write a children's book, like one would argue or could argue that 
that would actually allow that person to understand better what you're trying to say, which is the basic idea of communication. Mm -hmm. Particularly in a realm like SciComm. Right, right. And that's kind of like, and if we go back to that in terms of words and how to put words together to make sentences and phrases, that combination of using the English language in a way that's interesting, in a way that invokes imagery, in a way that invokes um, some sort of interaction, engagement of whoever's listening to you out there, whether that be about your science or about anything that you want to talk about. Um, that's kind of where this podcast is trying to head towards, making science interesting, making science um, understandable, even if it's complex. And I think that kind of leads nicely into our next question, which is why do you think science communication is important in today's society? A lot of, there's a lot of avenues that we can go with that. Um, the main thing I would probably say now is how easy it is for people to share things now or people to have um, access to, you know, writing their opinions to publicize everything they, they want to say, every thought they have, which I don't think is technically a bad thing. I think that's actually a good thing. Um, but with that, it comes with, you know, who's telling them that this is real? Who's saying that these facts are facts? Um, and I think in terms of how science communication could progress towards its determining a way to make complex ideas um, simple, simple enough for everyone to understand, whether that you're uh, an academic, whether you're starting your career in academia, whether you're in school, whether you are an adolescent. Um, I, I think complex ideas could be simplified in a way based on the words that you choose. So that's why I think science communication now is super important, especially with all the issues that we have um, and we're trying to face head on together. Yeah, you know, you make a really good point about like wondering when people try to communicate science, is this true? Is this even fact? I remember many years ago, well, maybe it's not that long ago, but it feels like a while ago these days, uh, there was this thing called the ice bucket challenge. I'm not sure if you guys remember that. And for anyone listening that doesn't know what that is, it was pretty much this viral internet trend uh, to raise money for, uh, for, research in ALS that you would dump a bucket of ice over yourself and then people would donate to your, to that fund. And then you would, you would challenge other people to do the same. And, you know, it was, it, it really helped raise some awareness, but then a couple years later, there was this article that came out that said, Oh, uh, as a result of all the money raised during this period of time, uh, we have found, something regarding ALS. It was some new discovery. And that article went viral. I saw it everywhere. Everybody was sharing it being like, see how great this was? Like now there's new updates. And then suddenly, maybe a day later, I see, oh, just kidding. That was actually a false article. That was not true. But it went viral. Like it went everywhere. And so I still think of that sometimes. And you know, like it's it's scary almost to think that what kind of mis misinformation goes around. 
Yeah, agreed. And especially if people don't really, you know, they, they read like the simplified version of it, like a tweet, for example, kind of summarizing it, they don't actually delve into it. And I, I think science communication could kind of encourage that sort of activity to uh, read the simplified version, but also look into it more and see, you know, do you really understand it? Did they really understand what they said when they made this simplified summary? Um, I think science communication can kind of encourage that um, initiative to understand what it is they simplified. Totally. So what do you hope that attendees will get out of this event? So we had a panel back in August and now we're doing this again, but we're putting more of a focus on digital media because that's sort of the direction that a lot, SciComm is moving or has already moved. So what do you hope that those that attend will get out of this event? I hope that attendees can find different technologies that they probably didn't know about. Um, podcasting, although not new, um, it is kind of an avenue that a lot of science communicators are going towards. I know Bill Nye now has a has a podcast, Science Rules. Um, Neil deGrasse Tyson, he had his radio show, which is now kind of a podcast. Um, but kind of that awareness of different technologies out there where they can get information from trusted, credible sources that do the work to ensure that what they put out to the public is is um, truth, is, is honest. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, what's your opinion on TikTok as the new SciComm modality? Because someone brought that up to me the other day. In my honest opinion, I hate TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> I hate TikTok with a passion. Uh, I know a lot of people are into it, um, so kudos to them. Um, but I think the most effective TikToks that I have seen, um, they use it as... Um, have you guys heard the phrase death by PowerPoint? Yes. Okay, so I think the most effective ones that I've seen have that written all over it. They have just giant text blocks where they point at it and then like, oh, you're supposed to pause it and read the text. Um, and I don't, I don't think you can make it that short enough and engaging enough for it to be useful. I could be wrong, though, but I, I think in terms of what TikTok is for science and communicating science, I think a better platform is something like YouTube. Uh, yeah, because I guess you have that kind of space to really get a message across accurately. And oh, that's true. Mm -hmm. Like I, I think YouTube is, you, you can have short videos on YouTube, you can have long videos on YouTube. Um, you can have graphics, um, you can have, uh, you can have yourself in there, which is a lot of what TikToks are. Um, kind of promoting your face, um, which is, you know, it's, it's a good thing to get your face out there so you're well, more well-known. Um, but I think YouTube is a, is a better platform for um, uh, doing that as well as sh showing, showing more, showing graphics, pictures, uh, videos, movies. Because um, I think TikTok, you, you have to kind of, you can't have that in like the corner of the screen like YouTube can have. You can't have like an in-shot uh, video or picture. Uh, it always has to be like yourself or whatever video you have recorded as the main video. And that's basically it. And then text blocks. 
Um, so I wanted to ask you, kind of just maybe out of curiosity's sake, what was the inspiration behind the title of your podcast? Oh, good question. Good question. What was the inspiration? Hold on, I had to think about that. Um, it honestly might have just been like it was about expressions. Um, metaphors are a type of expression. Um, and I talk about the history behind different metaphors. Um, so I just put origin at the end of metaphor. Um, and how I got the butterfly in there, it's kind of like, um, I, I think a butterfly is a good representation of what my podcast talks about. So it's, you know, it, you, uh, it starts off as a caterpillar, you know, and then it becomes uh, changes by metamorphosis into a butterfly. Um, and it's, it becomes like something that people might not like, or even very much hate the caterpillar into something beautiful, like a butterfly, which I think are what metaphors do for language. And I think could do for science communication. Interesting. That's so deep. I love that. I really love that. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't meant to be deep at all. Isn't that really funny? Because like, unpopular opinion, I hate butterflies. Like, I'm a total modophobe. Um, (laughs) So, um, but I, I like the message behind that. Do you, do you like the reverse? Do you like caterpillars instead? Um, oh, yeah, I love them. They're cute and fuzzy. But ever since I was a small child, I've had an irrational fear of butterflies. So, yeah, that could be debunked on probably someone's podcast out there. And I guess I had one last question for you. Um, I wanted to ask you about your writing because a lot of people who podcast and are scientists definitely don't have writing as creative and artistic as yours. And as someone who's an artist in the sense of being a dancer, I always found it very difficult to blend my love of science and my artistic craft. And I could never really find some sort of crossover where they could exist together. But I find your writing has a very subtle way of incorporating scientific ideas or maybe getting someone to think about a psychological concept such as bias. Um, Where, I guess, what's the inspiration behind your writing and what really drives it? Mm-hmm. So I did start with writing as my kind of creative um, output in a way. Um, like I've always read books as a kid and towards the age I am now. And I've always wanted to get into writing. And I recently got into writing maybe two years ago. Um, I would say my inspiration comes from uh, writers like George Orwell, um, Kurt Vonnegut, um these are people i find that try and you have the the a simple idea and you take it to a whole new perspective and kurt vonnegut does it so well i can never emulate it but um my my way of describing what i write so you have the the classic story of good versus evil right so you have a um a hero and a and towards the end of the of the story and towards the end of my stories, 
the villain always like says what what's wrong or what his evil devious plan is or she their evil evil devious plan on how to corrupt the hero and corrupt the world so i I kind of took that idea and in my story there's never a villain it's always like um it's always like an an iffy foggy area of who's the who's the protagonist who's the antagonist but i would say that there is no antagonist in any of my stories what the what the evil plan is is actually a societal issue that i find um pervading like throughout is is a current problem that that we face and that that is the the evil plan and it's it it's it's like written clear as day towards the end of my stories and the and then the the main character i guess kind of just like oh thinks about it and then it just goes on kind of like what happens in real life and the point of my stories is to make readers think about it and instead of just like oh this is what happens and not do anything about it actually do something about it or just change their perspective about it so i think of like gender bias was one of the stories uh, miranda that you mentioned um Something I wrote about. I wrote about uh, my first story. I wrote about was uh, a story about animal cruelty, um, and, and that was inspired by this painting by I cannot remember the name. Unfortunately, it was a uh, no. I can't remember the name, but it's essentially a it's a picture of on a farm. So there's a farmer petting a cat, and then the farmer is pointing a knife at all the animals to his right, which are like um livestock essentially so like cows pigs goats sheep animals that we eat so it evokes that perspective of oh why does a cat get such (laughs) good manners petting it and feeding it and then we just treat other animals as just meat yeah so that's kind of where I, i i kind of get my inspiration from paintings um but also yeah though the way i write is by um authors like kurt vonnegut that's really cool if if people want to read your writing or listen to your podcast where can they find it so my yeah my writing is on my personal website um it's all free so you can read it online it's uh, on my website kjbmercurio.com and that's also where my twitter handles and instagram handles come from uh, my podcast is on most of podcast platforms, I think, except for Amazon, which just recently started to do podcasts. Excuse me. So I think I have to send my RSS feed to them. <laughs> That's a bit of podcast lingo. Um, so yeah, it's a, my pla- my podcast would be on most podcast platforms. Perfect. Well, thank you for taking the time to chat with us this evening. Can I also recite another poem that I, I printed? Go for it. I love poetry. This is a, this is another one about words and how like weird they are. So it's a it's from a, a Nobel Prize winner actually. It's by Wiz, and I I'll probably butcher the name, but I'm gonna try. Wizlawa uh, Chimborska. So she she's from Poland and she's a poet. She won the 1996 Nobel Prize in Literature. So she, most of her work is on war and terrorism. Um, she started to live, um, I think, at the end of, of World War One, And she lived through a lot of world conflicts, World War II. 
and died at the age of 88 in 2012. But she wrote an interesting poem called The Three Oddest Words that I I printed out because I, I freaking love words. <laughs> like I, any, any poetry about, about words, or sorry, poetry in general I love, but a poem about words specifically is like something you rarely find. But here it goes. It's called The Three Oddest Words. When I pronounce the word future, the first syllable already belongs in the past. When I pronounce the word silence, I destroy it. And when I pronounce the word nothing, I make something no non-being can hold. I love that. Just like putting, putting words together about words. Like language is honestly, well, communication in general, but language itself is kind of like an... I don't know. It's like an artsy. Uh, it evokes so much, you know. It evokes imagery, it evokes uh, sounds, a whole bunch of stuff. It makes you think about a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Like each language, at any present moment, has a limited capacity of words, and it's simple rearrangements of the same words that make something beautiful versus something ugly. so much for joining us Kevin and a lot of the lingo that you use will be fully explained in our panel on November 8th at 1 p.m pacific so we're so excited to see you there Kevin and to hear more about what you do and the whole podcast science communication space uh, yeah so yeah that that is literally the ending <laughs> <laughs> awesome I've not thought of words to this extent uh, in a while, so you've given me something to think about leading up to the panel as well. So thank you. <laughs> no problem. I hope I hope that I could do that with like anyone I talk to about the podcast that I do. And that wraps up today's interview. Be sure to tweet us at SciNetworkers to let us know what questions you'd like us to ask Kevin or any of the other panelists during our event.